I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. I was 13 years old when I went to the barbershop on my own for the first time. All around me, they were mostly older men cutting hair and talking loudly about everything from the Boston Celtics to the Reagan administration. Yeah, that language and the points of view I was hearing would have been way off limits at home. I was amazed, and I quickly realized that at the barbershop, pretty much anything goes. Later this hour, we'll explore barbershop culture and talk to a few Nashville barbers. But first, advocates say it's past time for Tennessee to change laws that criminalize people who are living with HIV. They say the laws are out of date and disproportionately affect women and black people. To help us better understand this issue, I'd like to introduce my first guests. Katie Reardon is a reporter who just wrote a story for WKNO in Memphis, and Robin Lennon-Deering is an associate professor at the University of Memphis. Katie, Robin, welcome to This is Nashville. Hi, thank you. Thank Glad you. Glad to be here. Really happy to have you both with us. So, you know, Katie, just to get the basics down, what HIV-related laws are advocates most concerned about? Katie, are you with us? Oh, we have some technical difficulty. We're trying to get Katie. But, you know, Robin, can you tell me about Can you hear me now? Yes, we can. Awesome. Okay. Sorry. Sorry about that. It's okay. It's um, Zoom. Keep going. Oh, Robin. I can go ahead and jump in. Please yes. do, Robin. The, the biggest problem with the Tennessee laws are, one, that they are outdated, but secondly, you don't have to transmit HIV to be arrested. People are arrested and convicted just based on the fact that they have HIV and someone has accused them of not disclosing. And then the third biggest problem is that Tennessee puts people with HIV on the sex offender registry. Okay, so can we back up a little bit and explain which laws we're talking about? Yes. The first law is called criminal exposure to HIV, and that's if someone does not disclose their HIV status when they have intimate relations or if they donate blood, an organ, or share syringes. The second law is aggravated prostitution, and that's simply a person that is arrested for prostitution and they uh, know that they have HIV. Okay. Okay. So, you know, put this into context for us. Why are these laws on the books? Well, they are on the books because our lawmakers thought that uh, imprisoning and incarcerating people with HIV would either deter people from uh, having uh, sexual relations when they were HIV positive, or they thought that, you know, incarcerating people would stop the spread of HIV. Mm. But obviously that's not the case. In fact, it really disrupts the ability for people to get tested and to know their status, because if they do know their status, people can accuse them of not sharing that. And that's a felony. Now, one of the people Katie interviewed for her piece is they called Missy, and she is an HIV positive sex worker who was arrested. Missy used protection and was on a medication that made it unlikely that she would pass the virus on to her customers. But her HIV status still landed her on the sex offender registry for life. Mm -hmm. Let's hear from her. It literally 
consumes you. That's all you can think about because, okay, I'm getting turned down for this job because of this. I'm getting turned down for this housing because of this. You know, Robin, tell us more about what being on the sex offender registry does for a woman like Missy. Well, for women, it's extremely difficult. You know, they are mothers, grandmothers, and family members. A lot of them are caregivers. And not having the ability to be legally employed, not having the ability to get housing, to uh, get a further education, travel, it it's daily uh, suffering and misery every day. So people that are on the sex offender registry are labeled as pedophiles. Even though people living with HIV were consenting adults, uh, they still have to follow the same exact rules and regulations that people who are child abusers have to follow. You know, who are some of the people who are, who are the people who just most likely affected by these laws? The most likely people are those that are poor because a lot of people that are um, that are convicted of the aggravated prostitution are street sex workers. In other words, this is for survival sex. They have no housing. Uh, in fact, we we found that one out of five people arrested is homeless. They are living on uh, the streets and trying to just make a living. They don't have uh, families. Some of them have mental health issues. So they're all at a marginalized situation and being arrested is just a further uh, enmeshment into a system that's going to continue to uh, oppress them. Okay, we got Katie Reardon back on the line. Now, Katie, just tell me, how did you come and find this story? Yeah, hi there again. Um, My apologies about that. I actually had uh, stumbled upon the story because I had read an op-ed that Robin had written um, in a publication in Memphis, and um, I had never heard of these laws before. And I I think there's sort of a a general sentiment that way in the general public that that, um, I had no idea that these laws were on the book. And and so I had reached out to Robin to learn a bit more about them. Okay. So, you know, looking into this, this lawmakers, I want to kind of find out a little bit more about what lawmakers are saying about these laws. And is there any opportunity or possibility of them repealing them? Sure. So there was legislation um, this session that uh, dealt with uh, one charge, the criminal exposure charge. And the original legislation that had been proposed um, had been much more expansive and advocates had had pushed for um, uh, much uh, doing away with, um, excuse me, uh, turning this into a misdemeanor and requiring things like an intent to transmit. And by the time it made it to the floor, um, they had just asked for a drop in the requirement uh, in the sex offender registration. And that passed the Senate um, along bipartisan lines. The legislation was carried by two uh, legislators from East from East Tennessee, um, but it didn't pass in the House. And there was pushback from from um, legislators who who said that um, you know this would make Tennesseans less safe and and that these laws exist for a reason and that people have a duty to disclose. Um, the sponsors, you know, then then countered with, I'm, I'm sure, again, I, I missed some of this, but um, some of the arguments that, that Robin had made that these laws are 
Um, they argue that are poor public health policy and that um, really what they're pushing for is a requirement um, to prove intent that somebody is, is trying to spread a communicable disease. You know, Robin, what's your response? I think that people who are in the legislature, the Tennessee Assembly, they don't see the reality of the situation for people that are criminalized. You know, this is a statistical numbers thing for them. They don't want to be seen as light on crime. So they're not seeing that this is a a lifetime sentence and punishment that people, first of all, are not aware of when they uh, are arrested because it's not disclosed that, hey, if you plead guilty to this sentence, to this crime, you will be uh, a lifetime sex offender. You know, people uh, that have been arrested say they had no idea that they were pleading guilty to something that was going to cost them the rest of their lives. Would you say that misinformation about HIV is a part of the problem? Yes. People still think that HIV is a death sentence, and it's not. People are living successfully, thriving. Many people take a regime of one pill a day. This is not a death sentence. This is a chronic, manageable illness. Now, Katie, what are you looking for as you follow this story, as it all develops? Yeah, well, I think, of course, every year there's a new legislative session. And, and from what I've heard uh, speaking to advocates is, as they say, each year, um, uh, speaking to, to Robin's point, that they say a lot of this is education. And each year they're able to reach a few more lawmakers um, and that they're able to perhaps dispel some myths, um, uh, help them uh see what it looks like to live with HIV today. And so, um, and uh, Robin can probably speak to this more, but uh, groups are going to um, continue to bring legislation um, about this. And so I'll be following to see what that looks like and um, to see what kind of push that back that receives um, and what those laws could potentially look like in a modernized form. Now, Robin, can you give me quick, just elaborate on, you know, what's next? What are some potential solutions we can have? Well, I, we definitely need to continue the public education. We definitely need to educate the lawmakers and policymakers. But I think a misunderstanding uh, is that this is a law that arrests people for transmitting HIV. And that's not the case. You're not keeping people safe. You're keeping people from knowing their status. People are not transmitting HIV and being arrested. This is the only people that are being arrested are people that are are uh, caught up in the criminal justice system, which are people that are highly surveilled and targeted by police for other crimes. So we're we're looking forward to putting forth another bill. We really want to get some legislative champions, and we know that with this being Robin. Republican and and okay. bipartisan support. Okay, that is Robin Lennon-Daring, associate professor at the University of Memphis. She was joined by reporter Katie Reardon, who published a story about HIV laws for WKNO in Memphis. I want to thanks to you both for being with us today, and thanks for sticking through the technical difficulties. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll sit in the barber's chair for a quick shape-up and a chat about barbershop culture in Nashville. Who's your favorite barber? What do you enjoy the most about hanging out in the shop? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back.
I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. What's good? What's good? Not much, man. How are you? All righty. Awesome. What's going on with you? Man, you know. Pretty busy. It's another busy Saturday afternoon in Moore's Barbershop and Beauty Salon on Gallatin Road in East Nashville. I've been coming here for about eight months now, so I've gotten to know Barbara Stacy Brooks well. And if you know Stacy, you know the shop talk will eventually get to politics. And let's say things ain't working like they said it's supposed to work. What you going to do? What do you normally do when it, when it ain't working? It ain't happening like they said it was going to happen. What do you do? Nothing. I just chalk it up to politics. I usually go and find a friend to vent to. And then you wait for the next election to vote again. Yeah. Yeah, that's all you do. Yeah. You ain't, that's, but really, at Moore's, nothing's off the table. You can express yourself freely. It's a real safe zone. And Stacy always has the best advice. Well, most people get decisions and mistakes confused. Sometimes they make bad decisions that they're aware of. And then when they suffer the consequences, they want to call it a mistake. Stacy handles the front of the shop with two other barbers. In the back at the salon is Jonathan C. He's been a barber for 32 years. It's a relationship and it's an experience. Not so much about the hair. It is and, and it's not. That's what's kept them at it these relationships, although they almost turned out to be a problem. That everybody, when you start dealing with the head, they release. I almost turned out to be an alcoholic within my first two months. Because I'm one of the ones that like to want everybody to resolve everybody's issues. But he never stopped. A relationship with them is more than just a dollar. And so if you're chasing a dollar in this business, you're going to last. You have to love what you do. Yeah. The barbershop is a place where all kinds of people ultimately end up. It's the kind of spot where people can get let their hair down, pardon the pun. So it's also a good place to share information with a wide cross-section of folks, the kind of information that can save lives. My next guest heads out to barbershops to do just that. Gerard Parrish is a clinical pharmacist who spent two years hanging out in barbershops around the city, and he joins me now. Gerard, welcome to This is Nashville. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. Happy to have you with us. So you've been going to barbershops and not just hanging out or getting your hair cut. You've been going for a specific purpose. Tell me, tell us what you've been doing. So um, it was a yeah, two-year process where we went into barbershops and um, screened patients for um, hypertension. So that's high blood pressure, um, one of the leading causes of death out there. So we screened patients for high blood pressure, and if they happen to have high blood pressure, we'd enroll them into a, a program that we had um, through a um, fund we had from the NIH. And through that, we were able to help um, several different members of the community get their blood pressure under control, um, learn a little bit about that, um, use medications. We also use lifestyle management, and we was able to um, have a lot of trust developed in the, in the community as well as provide some information about um, vaccines. Um, that COVID was not in the in the works at the time, mm-hmm. but it kind of came about while we were in the barbershops as well. So um, working with that and working with different members of the community to provide um knowledgeable health care to those um, individuals, you know, and especially in the black community, um, you know, for health care. Talk to me about that. Like yeah. what type of apprehensions uh, have men, the men you've worked with, expressed about the health care system? Um, you know, 
thinking about like Tuskegee experiment, those things, they ride in our minds um, very much. And we don't want to be experimented on, um, don't want to be looked at as guinea pigs. Um, definitely, you want to be healthy. I think that was one of the biggest things I saw. Everyone wants to be healthy. But that way in which you're going to be healthy, um, you may not trust that that, that doctor is going to treat you right because of um, different things that's happened in your past. You know, you get pulled over by the police, you go to a health center, and they don't treat you appropriately. And then now, you know, you heard your mother talk about that. You heard your father talk about it. And now you've experienced it yourself, and you don't trust that community. So I think it's up to the healthcare system as a whole to, you know, be equitable in their treatment, especially of African Americans, in um, making it making healthcare um, accessible to everyone. What makes barbershops the right place to talk to people about these issues? I think barbershops are a great place because it's, like you said, mentioned earlier, it's open, open environment. You can talk about what you need to. Um, there's a barber there. You really trust your barber there working around your mouth, your face. Um, you go to the barber for all your big events. You know, you get married, uh, you're going to a graduation. Um, even some of the hardest times, you have a death in the family. You're going to go to the to your barber. So there's someone that you really trust, and then the barber can lend that trust to um to us as well than the healthcare system. And then it's a place that you go to over and over again. So it's a place that, you know, we can follow up with the patient. Now I'd like to introduce my next guest. Stephen Mason is the owner of Handsomizer and Dewan Conley is the owner of Anointed Hands. Stephen and Dewan, thanks for joining us. Uh, good to be with you. So Dewan, did, did Gerard visit your shop while he was doing his work? Yes, he did. He's also one of my clients and a long-standing friendship for several years. Okay, so what was it like when he approached you saying that he wanted to do this? What was that conversation like? Well, um, when he initially came to me, he was like, man, you know, I think that the level of uh, comfort that people have in the barbershop along with this project, as well as there were some financial benefits, uh, this would work really well. So when he came to me, I'm all about the community and trying to help enhance and help, you know, and be a resource. So by any means that we can do that, uh, you know, and offer the health care initiative that some, you know, may need. Because in many instances, as men, as black men, we really don't take our health as serious as we should. And we you know the macho factor of mm-hmm. that we've been taught over the years mm-hmm. uh, that, you know, hey, man, uh, just get some rest, you know, drink some water, you know, take this or take that and we'll feel better in the morning. Mm-hmm. So I say, you know, that that sounds like a really good project. And I, I, I think that uh, it will work. Now, you started your career fairly young, right? Yes. What why did you want to do this work? Well, uh, for me. At about at about the age of ten years old, I started out working in the barbershop. I was the cleanup guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, my grandfather was a barber, so I would uh, sweep the hair up. You know, watch my grandfather and four other barbers at a uh, Paul's Barbershop in South Nashville, located on Lewis Street. And uh, I also had another job, which was when the guys got out of the seat. You know how when you sit down, you get your hair cut, the cape doesn't always keep the hair off the back of your shirt. Yeah. So when they got up, my job was to make sure that I brushed them. Had a whisk, I had a small whisk broom, and I would dust their shirts off. And in return, they would give me tips, as well as my grandfather and them would pay me at the end of the end of the week for keeping the shop clean, cleaning the bathrooms. And also, you know, they taught me how to legally hustle 
despite, you know, seeing the things that I was seeing growing up in the inner city. Mm-hmm. So that just stuck with you. Yes. That's awesome. Now, Stephen, you had quite an accomplished first career as a musician. So tell me, how did you transition to barbering and why hair? Oh, man, that's that's a great question. I mean, just to piggyback on uh, what Jonathan and Gerard were getting at, and um, it really is... Um, it really is about community and about self-care and creating that safe space kind of to reorient ourselves to the best of who we are. And I think that's the, the cool gift that the barber gives. Um, and it, it doesn't have to be complex. It can be just mirroring stuff back to them and just creating that safe space for them to talk about whatever is on the front of their brain. Um, uh, I, I think for me, it was just learning, um, learning a new trade and also um, having uh, having conversations that seem to really uh, change hearts and minds. Um, that, that I think that was part of part of it. But also just I, I love doing stuff with my hands, you know, in, in terms of like I used to play guitar. So I, I wanted to do something like that, um, but uh, also had a passion for mental health and and uh, kind of therapeutic stuff, counseling, and um, man, the barbershop embodies it all really, mm. really well. If you're, so. just, if you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Kali Olekolono. We're talking this hour about the culture of barbershops. Now, Stephen, you were talking to our producer, and you said that barbershops are a segregated picture of America. Tell, mm. tell, I, well, tell, tell me more about that. Yeah, well, I, I just, uh, you know, I went to, went to a barber school here in Nashville, and um, and, you know, I didn't grow up in Nashville. I'm from the Chicago area originally, but um, I, I just know that to know the history of Nashville and, uh, and to be in the barber trade, um, you, you, you must see the intersection of the conversation around civil rights uh, and, and, and the community. And the barbershop, again, is the heartbeat of these communities. Now, Dewan, have you seen any biases when it comes to barbershop, racial, and otherwise? Well, for me, uh, I started out in the inner city, which gave me one view. But once I became an owner-operator, I was in downtown Nashville. So once I got into downtown, I started having a more diverse and more... uh, cultures uh, and and demographics and at, at times it can be very you know saying touchy mm-hmm. subject but I've come to realize that everybody's not insensitive to the, the 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 topic and when you have people that don't mind dialoguing and 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 being constructive, and and the crowd around you is a different level of a mindset, then you can you can take that conversation and make it very constructive. I've been in those environments as well. Now Gerard Parrish is still with us. Gerard, you were nodding your head. So I, I can assume you've been in a barbershop where the conversation does get a little bit touchy and it takes a turn. What's that experience like? Yes, uh, when I was in the barbershops a lot, it was during election time, and, you know, as Dewan spoke of, you know, you see a lot of different demographics that come through the barbershops as well, and you have those conversations. And uh, we had some research assistant one time. She was a young um, white female who was in there, and you just hear some of those conversations that are going on. And as long as you keep it respectful 
and it's a productive conversation. I think everyone gains something from it because you get to see things from different perspectives and uh, people can actually take away something from it. Even if they don't agree, they still know where you stand and they come away thinking, hey, you know, even though they think differently from me, they're not that much differently. We may disagree on 10 percent of things, but Mm -hmm. maybe 80 to 90 percent of the things we agree on. And I I value that person's experience. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was just in our barbershop about a month ago and the conversation went from everything from politics to who was better, the 98 Bulls or the 2017 Golden State Warriors. And a whole bunch of conversation <laughs> was happening in between, you know. And it's kind of about welcoming and challenging sometimes mm-hmm. our biases, right? Like as an African-American man, it's easy to see a different ethnicity and assume as a barber and assume that they don't know how to line up and fade. Like, Stephen, have you had hmm. moments where people have made their assumptions but your skills have proven them wrong. Uh, I mean, certainly. I mean, uh, uh, that has cer- certainly it. it um, you know, barber school, especially. I mean, the first thing we were doing on on you know uh, the barber school on the west side of Nashville was learn how to properly properly fade and line a man up. So, <laughs> um, yeah, that. I mean, it's 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 all it, it's. I don't know how to say it any better than it's all embodied in the barber shop. And I think um, what the guys are just saying about about uh, allowing people to find, you know, to get past that 10% and to, to kind of reorient themselves to, uh, reorient all of ourselves to the, that 90% of this is, this is the, the, the Venn diagram. This is the common soil. This is the, the common earth from which all of us, um, are celebrating and growing from, um, but the barbershop just does that in a, in a magical way. And it, it and as we said, it, it isn't always pretty. There are biases. There are, there are opportunities for growth and learning, but um, you know, that it, it all happens there as, as long as the guy said, as long as we're open to, to those conversations and, and, you know, ready to be surprised, life can be good that way. You know, a lot of things can go down in the barbershop. I mean, a lot. Uh, I'm going to ask each of you, but Stephen, what's a memorable moment for you? Uh, you know, uh, gosh, um, uh, you know, everything from uh, having, having, having somebody shell shocked in the chair um, uh, from some major, major family stuff, whether that was a death in the family, divorce, um, uh, a surprise, you know, that, you know, these, these unplanned painful catastrophes and things. Um, uh, the barber chair is, uh, sometimes a place of mercy that way, uh, where we can sit and, you know, I'm a bit of an empath that way. So I, I, you know, I'll, I'll, I want to reflect and mirror what the people are bringing in. Uh, now some days, uh, some days we need to be that positive mirror for them, but some days people just need you to go, man, that sucks. Or I'm with you. I hear you. And um, I, th- I think that's been kind of the most meaningful uh, and surprising aspect of being a barber. You know, I was worried about getting a great fade. Um, uh, really, people just want to feel like they're seen and and they're reminded of their dignity as human beings. Mm-hmm. Dewan? Well, you know, I, I was sitting here reflecting when you asked the question. And, you know, I'm a big sports guy, play football and all that kind of stuff. And a couple of years ago, I was privileged with Coach Prime and Shadur walking in my shop. So Deion Sanders. Yes, they were in town, and uh, they were at Vanderbilt's camp when Derek Mason was still the coach. Shadur was a junior in high school at the time. 
And they came in, and he was like, uh, hey, man, just want to know if we can get a couple of haircuts. And I was like, in, in awe. You know, and then I also had the privilege of, you know, Kirk Franklin and, you know, numerous people. You know, when I was downtown on Church Street, it was a blessing because the relationships I built with Sony Music and other places, you know, and I've been blessed to do several things of that nature. Now, last month, the community lost the venerable Vernon Winfrey, who owned the barbershop in East Nashville. You know, Dewan, what did he mean to you? Uh, Mr. Winfrey was one of our legends of the trade. And uh, when I was asked a question earlier, I said, who can I reach out to that could give me something that really meant something to Mr. Winfrey? And I reached out to... uh, David Hyland, who is one of his sons of the trade. And David said the one thing that I think everybody who had the chance to speak to him or, you know, even get to have a conversation with him would want to know is what he lived by. And the saying that he gave to all of us, whether you were in barber school, whether you just stopped by the shop or whatnot was never let no one be nicer to you than you can be to them. And when he said that, he said that to say, I don't engage in conflict. I don't argue. I don't raise my voice. Everything is mild-tempered. And if you take that approach in life, you'll find out that the road is less bumpy Mm -hmm. and you you have less uh, negative interactions with people because if you come off as nice, easygoing, that energy will fill the room and it will rub off on the people that are around you. Mm-hmm. Now, Gerard, what makes a good haircut for you? Oh, man. Uh, this guy right here, I just, you know, tell him to do his work and then um, he can do it. But, you know, you want to have a, a sharp a sharp fade, have sharp lines. You got to have the line upright. You know, that's kind of the, the that's essential thing you have to have. And um, a good conversation, you know, that makes the time even better when you go there. So I think those two things, a good line and a good conversation, makes the haircut um, worthwhile. Stephen, what do you want people to know about the importance of the neighborhood barbershop? Oh, man. I mean, uh, Juwan uh, echoed it right there. It's just that this is a this is a place where everybody's free to gather and to be themselves. Uh, and and, you know, a lot of us are really terrible at self-care and that that's a hallmark of the barbershop. So go get yourself taken care of because that helps, that helps us bring the best of ourselves to the rest of what we do. So that is Stephen Mason, owner of Handsomizer Barbershop. He was joined by Dewan Conley of owner of Anointed Hands and clinical pharmacist Gerard Parrish. Thanks to you all for being on the show today. Really appreciate this fellas. Thank you. We have to take a short break. We'll talk with two people and learn how their paths led them behind the barber chair. We've been trying to learn which shop in town is the longest running. So if you know the oldest shop in Nashville, tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil Colonna, and this is Nashville. 
To be a barber, you have to love more than just cutting hair. You have to love people, all sorts of people. You have to know how to listen, how to offer advice, how to be supportive of the folks who support you. As we heard a little earlier, the road to becoming a barber doesn't necessarily look the same for everyone. And the best barbers hear the calling. My next guests are two barbers who heard the call and are creating smiles with every cut. Selena Vito is the barber and shop manager at Sage and Brush Barbershop. She is joined by Hader Ferdon. Selena and Hader, welcome to This Is Nashville. Thank you very much. Thank you. Glad to be here. Really glad to have you both. Now, Selena, I think it's safe to say that you're part of the newest barbershop in town. In fact, Sage and Brush is opening today, like as we speak. Congratulations. What is the energy like around there? Thank you so much. Um, that's actually why I was late today. <laughs> Still with the client. Um, it's been great. It's been really busy. We've had a lot of people come in really excited to see us in the neighborhood. I've already gotten some new clients I haven't seen before just from walking by here. Um, a little bit, a little, little nervous today. It's, it's going good so far though. I'm not mad at it. <laughs> what neighborhood, what part of town are you in? We are uh, in Lachlan Springs neighborhood. We're, uh, if you're familiar with East Nashville at all, we're literally in the same building as Frothy Monkey over here. We're in the South 17th Street, just off 17th and Fatherland. Okay, so say I'm walking down Fatherland. What can I expect if I walk into your shop? Oh, wow. Of course, always the good smells. Barbershops always smell great when you walk into them. Um, warm welcome greeting. We offer beverages, uh, a good chat. You know, it's where we're basically going to be piggybacking off and a lot of what people said earlier. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Now, so th- that means you feel a connection to the other barbershops in town? Oh, 100%. It was really nice to hear other barbers say what they had to say. Now, you, Sage and Brush is female-owned and operated. Now, typically, we might think of barbershops as a male-dominated field. You know, what's something special that you all are bringing to the barbershop game? Um, I've actually worked in an all-male barbershop, which is, uh, I was the first female that was ever allowed on the floor. Um, and coming from that to an all-female barbershop has been, <laughs> um, it's, I think it, I'm not, I'm, I'm, this is just speaking from my own personal experience with barbershops. Um, women, we, I mean, I don't know a lot about sports, I'm not going to lie. Mm-hmm. But I mean, we bring in other conversations. I have a lot of clients that like to discuss gardening. I love gardening. Okay. You know, w- being in an all-female spot, just a, a different topic of conversation, I guess. Now, you have you always cut men's hair? No, actually, I started out doing women's hair. Um, I apprenticed uh, at a place here in Nashville years ago um, to do female's hair and it just wasn't doing it for me. And I actually took a break from doing hair, um, came back on and started focusing on men's hair and fell in love with it and have been doing it ever since. Tell me real quick, what's the biggest difference between the two? The conversation, honestly, the conversation. And it's the challenge of the cuts as well. For me personally, I can't speak for other people, but the, even just the atmosphere of a salon. And again, from my own personal experience, I can't speak for everyone. Um, 
barbershops are a little more community oriented to me for me and I'm I'm really into that type of atmosphere and that kind of relationship with people I love hearing people's stories I I want to hear all about your life mm-hmm. now hater yes you've been a barber for a very long time yes how did you get started uh, when I started was uh, 14 years old uh, I was uh, going to the barbershop in my area and uh, one of the name of the the king in my country in Iraq, he was, um, uh, his name is Ahmed. He he was professional and I like to do a cut with him. And uh, I asked him if he can teach me how we do a haircut because I, I was, I, I love drawing. I love a lot of things about artists. artists and he said, okay, I help you uh, to, to, to get, uh, to be barber. And he, I, I start with him. He teach me a lot of things about the barber's scale. Um, I worked for him for a couple of years. Uh, and I, after that, I just uh, moved from my country to Jordan for five years. And uh, uh, I started doing barber, uh, doing cut, and learning more from different country until I came to America in 1999. Now, I understand you call it the art yes. of barbering. Yes. You know, so... What is something important that you've learned about being a barber? Okay, um, I like uh, I like doing uh, I like doing cu- I like doing cut because art how you make people feeling happy when they try to do style for him or doing cut he like. Um, most of the thing um, I'm listening to the customer when I start to do like if somebody comes new when they start to do haircut for him I ask him three four times make sure. He like what the cut is. He like I just do whatever he like. Sometimes, um, sometimes I give him advice if if he need like something different. If he accept what I told him, we can go wherever I ask. And if he like say I just do whatever I want, I say okay. We I start doing uh, cut. Mm-hmm. That's I think to do like uh, to make to people to make people happy. That's very important. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. Now, do you ever walk down the street or you're at the store and you see someone and you say to yourself, I know exactly what to do with yes. their hair? Yes. It'd be because sometimes cut is showing the face. The cut is with the face. Whatever, and whether, like, different different shape of face is different cut. Mm-hmm. That's what we try to do. When we see the people, oh, that's not nice. You need something else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, as you mentioned, you moved to the United States in 1999. Yes. What was that transition like for your family? Uh, um, when I came to America in 1999 as a refugee, uh, my wife was pregnant in eight months. Oh, wow. And we have the new baby. Uh, now she's 23 years. Yeah, it's my experience in America as a barber, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I almost like I have, cause, uh, I have family. I like my family. I like my kids. They are uh, in college. They are in college. Um, I, um, by experience with family, uh, is I like uh, uh, I I listen to my family what they said. Um, if they have any problem, I resolve the problem. If that's why I use him for barbershop too. Like I have a lot of people come and they have problem. I resolve the problem for them. Mm-hmm. I help them. If they need connected, I connect them to the other people. Mm-hmm. I try to help in community. I think barber is a heart of community mm-hmm. to help a lot of people by connection. By because you have a lot of 
different businesses coming to him. Different people, different, uh, different people like business, some people like employee. Yeah, they, they, you, you connection between the people. Okay. Yeah. Were you able, when you got here in 99 and your family was beginning to get settled, your wife was about to give birth to yeah. a child? Yeah, it was a very hard time. Yeah. Were you able to find work as a barber? The first time I just went to school. I finished school over here for cosmetologist for, and I did test for the barber. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was studying hard to get the, the license. And uh, after that, I started working in Hicks Hair Salon. First, fini- f- because I have experience with it. I have a scale from other countries and the, my teacher says, say, you, you can do better when you go to the diff- good place. And she helped me to get work in Hicks Hair Salon for almost three years. And after that, I worked for um, Golden Star Barbershop since then until right now, mm-hmm. but different owner. Okay. Yeah. Okay. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville and I'm your host, Khalil Ekelona. We're talking this hour about Nashville's barbershop culture and the art of barbering. Now, Selena, you, you were talking about how you made this transition from being a stylist for women's hair to wanting to be a barber and working for a barber at, as for men, working primarily with men. And you mentioned the conversation and the environment that that brings. Tell me a little bit more about that. Like, how does that change in environment help you connect with your clients a little better? Selena, are you with us? Is she on mute? One of those. Di- okay, so we're going to move on. Now, Hader. Yes. I understand the pandemic from okay. the past couple of years was pretty hard on you and your business. Yeah. What happened? Have you been able to recover? Um, uh, the, the problem is, uh, you know, when they have, been, uh, when they have the COVID-19 active, uh, effect, a lot of barbershops get effect on that time. We closed almost three months on that time. And um, we got some help from the government for that one, but it's not because a lot of people are scared to do, the, to do haircut on that time. We closed and people think it's hard to come back normally to the people to do haircut until they get vaccine. But still, uh, that's why we lost the business. And, I, uh, and uh, the owner, they tried to close the business. And my daughter, she said, I want to help you to open it from my house. Mm-hmm. And that's why I get home permit occupation. As a limit, the problem is a limit and it'd be closed in 2012. That's my issue problem right now. Uh, when, when do you have to be closed? It's 24. So in basically a year and a half. It'd be finished, the business. I don't know what I do, but I, try, I call my... Um, we call my uh, my counselor, my our Harding Place counselor. We talked to her, my do- my daughter. She just talked to her to help us, and uh, she uh, she said, uh, "I'm uh, f- uh, she said I'm not I'm not I'm not coming to help you guys. I'm not support you guys, because I thought we told her why. She said because uh, 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 because she said, if you feel it's too expensive for you, move to the other county and for cheap area to open business. And she don't know the barbershop is not like just I open business and that's it. Mm-hmm. Barbershop, it takes you two years, three years to pick up the customer, to pick up, to pick up the client, to, to see people that can trust you. 
mm-hmm. to work on it. Okay, the two years, this is from my life. I'm 53 years old right now. Two more, two more three years, how I can support my family? Mm-hmm. She don't know about that one. She just say words, okay. I mean, like, I don't know what I would do right now. That's my issue right now. I need people to support this, support me. I don't know, I need, like, I, what I'm looking for, is now I'm looking forward to open, it's hard to open business right now to go to the different area because now everything is expensive. Now. That's what we lost in the business. And you've been cutting out of your house, right? Yeah, my daughter's house, yes. We, if you open uh, permit occupation, uh, uh, permit occupation, uh, is there like, uh, is there like limit time and limit? And uh, it'd be ending in 2024. Now, Dewan Connolly is still with us. Now, I saw you nodding your head about how long it takes from what Hader was saying about how long it takes to establish trust with clientele to really have a successful shop. Yeah, well, for me, uh, I've been in this for 25 years and I've been doing it similar to Hader. Uh, I was 13 when I started, and for me, throughout the pandemic, my clientele really, you know, they stood by my side. Uh, my clientele was cash-apping me, and, you know, they really, you know, made sure that the business was able to be maintained mm. without it being opened. Um, unfortunately for me, my issue was they found mold and asbestos in my building. So I had to find a new location. Uh, and unfortunately, a family friend had a building. He had a barbershop, uh, Philip Bean, uh, had a, a barbershop called Bean's Barbershop, and he had a heart transplant, so he had closed down. So he allowed me to bring my business into that building, and we did a build-out and everything, and... The problem that I had over the pandemic was I lost the guys that worked for me. Mm. They, they, you know, were getting the benefits and they held out as long as they could. Then with the issues with the building. And so now I'm looking to build a new team. And uh, right now I'm doing everything on my own. And uh, but, yeah, the pandemic was very brutal, man. It's been so many people that I've heard and talked to. Uh, through my relationship with Major League Barber all across the country that, you know, shops just went by the wayside because of the whole coronavirus pandemic. Mm-hmm. That's why it's kind of good to see new shops emerge, but also we want to maintain the established people and the veterans like yourselves. Now, we got a tweet in from Nat Playmakers Academy about the question on the oldest barbershop in Nashville. They say at Nashville, Craig Head Barbershop. Winfrey is another for sure two weeks older than Reed and Sons, but is another Flags and Paul's Barbershop in South Nashville where the oldest, but Paul's closing in the end of 2021. Okay, so really quickly, Selena, you are the newest shop. So as you are getting started, what are you hoping for? I'm really hoping to connect with the community around here and honestly connect with more barbers. I want to see some barbers get together and start doing things together for their community. That's amazing. That's something that I saw recently. Go ahead. Uh, Selena, I welcome you to uh, follow on Instagram, uh, Major League Barber, uh, TN Trade Show. 
we have a show annually, and we also invite everyone to come to shows that we have around the country. Uh, we have shows we try to keep a health initiative as well as um, professional development with educational classes, et cetera. All right. I got to jump in right there. I want to thank my guests so much. I want to thank Dewan Connolly. I want to thank Selena. I want to thank you as well, Hater. Thank, thank you, you so much. Thank you very much. All right. I know people want to hear the word barbershop. You think quartet is not far behind. And just last month, Nashville's own Music City Chorus won the Barbershop Harmony Society's International Chorus Championship Let's have him sing it out. Take us away, fellas. Oh, won't you tell me what you want from me? We'll sit and sing on the dock. want to thank everyone who tuned in this hour. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, Tasha A.F. Limley. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tudhope. Shout out to our intern Doreen Chernecki. The masterminds behind our theme music are LaRange and Namir Blade. Special thanks to Nora Ferran, Rich Smith, Amy Tanksley, Rick Colazzo, Jamal Stewart, Alex Ramirez, and Mark Lemley. This conversation doesn't end here. Hit us up or tweet us at This Is Nashville. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Ekelona. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. And be good to each other. <laughs>